Well, last Sunday night we did four chapters in Genesis. We're only doing two tonight. I feel strangely free. But I want to start reading a, by reading a proverb to you. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And that is tonight's lesson in a nutshell, that God has a plan and he has a purpose. It's undeniable. It's unstoppable. And we'll be in Genesis chapters 10 and 11 as we're working our way now through the Pentateuch and, and kind of getting the ball rolling here. We come now to the portion of Genesis in which the stage of God's plan for his kingdom goes worldwide. The theme of Genesis, the theme of the Bible, is the kingdom of God. And now we're seeing the, the, the kingdom going worldwide. Now remember that the first unveiling of all this information that we've been going through in Genesis, that the first time this was really known on a broad scale, and particularly in inspired form, is through the pen of Moses here in the Torah, the Pentateuch, and it's being read to the people of Israel as they're on the brink of the conquest of the Canaanites 40 years after the Exodus, 40 years after they've, they've been released from Egypt. Now they're hearing this information and what they're being given is an historical and a theological justification for the conquest. And this, these two chapters in particular help us understand this. And so the story continues where we left off at the end of the flood. The earth has been cleansed of sinners. It just hasn't been cleansed of sin. In the flood of Noah, God started fresh, but Noah still brought a sin nature with him into the new world. And we saw that last time. But God's kingdom progress continues to go forward. His plan to build a worldwide kingdom in which redeemed mankind rules alongside him as vice regents on a perfect world, we're still headed in that direction. Most of Genesis will show us that God will use a single chosen nation to accomplish this redemption from sin. But before we get to that single chosen nation of Israel, we see the development of God's blueprint for the world to have a world made up of individual nations that are distinctive, that are unique, they're creative varieties that give, a, give life and depth and culture to the world, all of these nations would have a primary purpose to glorify God. And so what we're seeing here in Genesis 10 and 11 is what I'm calling the kingdom expanded. This is the formation of nations for the first time. Now, chapter 10 is most famously called the Table of Nations, and it lists the initial startup nations, 70 of them. Chapter 11 tells us how we got there. It was through an act of rebellion by mankind after the flood. And the most important feature of this history is that it really gives us another piece of the original plan of God. It shows us that God's plan for mankind to fill the earth is being worked out even in fallen sinful form. That his plan, at least in shadow form, is coming to fruition. And it shows that the continued promise of God in Genesis 3.15 to bring a Savior, to crush sin, to crush Satan, that this is still on its way. It's still being worked out. And now we'll get more specifics. The line of Shem, the son of Noah, through whom Christ will come. Christ, the ultimate Shemite or Semite, is on the way. And we see this story here. And that all who receive Christ as their Savior will live under this eternal blessing that God is promising. And all who reject him will be like the unbelievers in the flood, lost 
and without hope. Now, there's an interesting note that we make here, and that is that chronologically, chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, that comes first. But theologically, chapter 10 is more important because it shows that God's plan to form nations came before the rebellion that he used for his plan. And so chronologically, they're flip-flopped, and that is by design. Now, since our focus is a comparison of the plans of man and the plans of God, we read from Proverbs 19 about that, we're going to organize our thinking around the idea of plans, the plans of God and the plans of man. We'll have several plans of God and one plan of man, So let's just organize our thinking very simply that way. First of all, let's look at God's plan for kingdom nations. God's plan for kingdom nations. And we'll spend some time on this. The chronological beginning of chapter 10 really starts in chapter 11, verse 9. So if you look with me at the end of chapter 11, verse 9, this is where chapter 10 starts. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now we get to chapter 10, and it tells us of the expansions of mankind into 70 startup nations. But before we look briefly at this list here we have in chapter 10, God's plan for kingdom nations, we need to set up and we need to establish what we might call a theology of nations, a theology of nations. So let me just give you some information that might help you understand God's thinking about nations. There's two Hebrew terms, very key terms, goy and chem, which speak of peoples and nations. And, and the terms are basically interchangeable in the Old Testament. You can, you can flip-flop them. But in Genesis, those two terms have a, a distinction. Goy is understood to speak of a nation in the usual political sense. There's a government. There are boundaries. There's, there's a land. Ham has to do with ethnicity. And so most of the time, Ham is translated people, and that's more accurate. Now, this distinction will become important because God's will is that he would have Abram, who is the the recipient of his, his blessing, he'll organize him into a, or he'll bless him with a great goy, a politically organized nation. In other words, yes, there's a nation made up of ethnic Jews, but also a distinct political entity among other nations. Now, I bring this up because it's, it's very clear. Do I need to switch over here? It's very clear in that the promises to Abraham to form a nation that goes on forever is, is a forever promise. And so any attempt to say that God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled in the church, that ignores the normal use of the word goy. It's a, it is a politically organized nation. It's not a metaphorical entity. It's not a spiritualized entity. It's an actual nation with boundaries and with rulers and so forth. Concepts such as land and political structure, this is at the heart of nationhood. And as we're going to see here, this is much less important than ethnicity, or as we wrongly call it, race. In fact, the Bible's view of race is completely different than what we hear today in the news, what we hear presented by politicians and self-proclaimed moral advocates. Prevailing wisdom today says that there are different races, black, white, brown, Caucasian, Asian, and, and so forth. We've all had to answer questionnaires or applications where you have to fill in the bubble, right? 
And now the bubbles, there's just more and more of them. And pretty soon there'll be pages of bubbles. And the definition of who you are just becomes more and more complicated. But those are really false distinctions. We learned just recently at the Steadfast Conference last fall that scientifically speaking, no one is truly white and no one is truly black. We're all varieties of what color? Brown. That's right. That's a scientific fact. But historically, those who want to divide humanity along so-called racial lines have tried to use Genesis 10 with really, really bad Bible study methods for their own political and sin-inspired agenda. The biblical reality is that there is one race. It is the human race. And we have a, a wide and a vast variety of cultural and genetic and ethnic variations. In fact, the word racism is really a misnomer. Racism isn't the real sin. Scripturally, the real sin is a refusal to see all people as made in the image of God. That, that's the sin. And yet what God calls for is not some human-centered social justice program. What is social justice? Well, it's where one set of depraved sinners tries to call another set of depraved sinners to account and labeling them as something general that can't be proven. And so it's a, it's a never-ending cycle. It'll never work because there's not a judge over those so-called proceedings. God doesn't call us to social justice. What does he call us to? He calls us to redemption, to preach Christ, to preach redemption from sin. That's the mission of the church. And this is a plan that erases all of those distinctions that are formed in a sinful manner. This is a plan of salvation in which the Romans who nailed Jesus to the cross can be forgiven. This is a plan of salvation in which the Babylonian emperor who destroyed Jerusalem can say in Daniel 4, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is a plan of salvation in which a slave trader named John Newton can be saved and become a pastor and a hymn writer extraordinaire. The Bible never tells us to celebrate difference for difference's own sake. The Bible lays out a plan which has an earth filled with nations who have in them variety and culture and endless creative expressions of God's infinite wisdom and his imaginative brilliance. As a matter of fact, the church of Jesus Christ is called to be a microcosm of that future reality. The church is where those who are outwardly different are brought together as brothers and sisters in Christ. They're inwardly filled with the same Spirit of God. I do not believe in churches divided by so-called racial lines. The Bible never calls us to that. Now, we do have a reality of having to divide churches by language lines because we can't all understand each other. That's a reality. But the church is the place where humanity, all those made in the image of God, come together. The table of nations is not about race. It's about, very simply, geography. That's what it's about. Now, the varieties of the one human race can be traced back, at least pretty vaguely, to these three men, to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem's descendants, most notably, are the Hebrews and the Arabs. The Hamites are associated mostly with Africa, especially Egypt and Nubia, but also with the Canaanites and some non-Africans. The Japhethites make up everyone else, including East Asians, Indians, Indo-Europeans, more commonly called Caucasians. Some think the East Asians are associated more with Hamites, but there's, there's disagreements on that. 
but this is a history of God's agenda, not man's curiosity. So what I want to do is just walk briefly through this list to see God's plan for kingdom nations. Genesis 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now, this sets up the reader for the repopulating of the earth through these three men. And this goes all the way back to chapter 9, verse 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So, one of those three men is your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. All of us. But the order they're listed here in verse 10, it's the same as they're listed in, in various places, but this isn't their birth order. Shem, Ham, and Japheth is not their birth order. Genesis 9.24 says that Ham is the youngest son. Genesis 10.21 says in most of your English versions that Shem is the elder brother of Japheth. But Jewish tradition, and frankly, some very strong uh, Hebrew scholarship favors Japheth as the oldest brother. None of us here are scholars, so we don't need to worry about that. But just to be safe, we would say that the lists of the boys don't come in birth order. They come in theological significance order. Shem... The line of the Savior, the line of Christ, the line of God's chosen people. Ham, the line which contains Canaan, which God's people will judge. And Japheth, the beneficiary of Shem, those blessed by Shem. All except right now. In this table of nations, the order gets flipped. The table of nations is presented with Shem's line last. And this is a very simple storytelling technique. Save the best for last. And that's what Moses does here. So we'll just look at them by the sons of Noah. First, the descendants of Japheth. The descendants of Japheth. Chapter 10, verse 2, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripheth, and Togarma. Now, I won't belabor the details about each nation. I just want to briefly mention what we know about them just to prove that God's kingdom expansion happened in a big way. Verse 2, you have Gomer. This is likely the, the ancestor of the Sumerians, that is, uh, with a C, Sumerians. Southern Russia, Ukraine, the Black Sea area. Some migrated to Germany, and you hear the name Gomer in Germany and even in Wales. Magog is associated with the peoples of Tubal and Meshach. They're listed later in Revelation 20 as enemies of God and enemies of God's people. Magog is very likely uh, became the former Soviet territory of Georgia, and you can hear some of the same words in there just north of Turkey. Uh, Madai would become the Medes, very important in the Medo-Persian Empire that will figure prominently in Israel's history. Javan would be very important. He would be the father of the Greeks and all the Mediterranean peoples. Tubal and Meshech, again associated with Magog, evidence that uh, there's evidence that those names are preserved in the Russian cities of Tobolsk and Moscow, that those names have, have come down through history. And then Tiris, some think, is speaking of ancient Thrace. Good evidence for that as well. But then it gets more specific in verse 3, the sons of Gomer, son of Japheth, Ashkenaz, these are the Scythians, the, the tribes from the Russian steppes in the north and the east of the Black Sea. And in fact, that's still a name associated with German Jews, the Ashkenazi, who settled all over Eastern Europe, and they still use that name to this day. 
Riphoth, this is a people who settled according to Josephus along the Black Sea, but eventually didn't want to be a people on their own and just decided to give up and be part of Rome. And so we don't know anything else about them. And then Togarma, they're in the far north and in Asia Minor, probably connected to the, to the name Turkey. So, so we can see, even in the names of our nations today and in kingdoms that we're aware of, that this table is very accurate. Then in verse 4, you have the sons of Javan, son of Japheth. And I already mentioned there, Javan is the, the progenitor of all the Greek peoples and those, all those families. You have uh, Elisha, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, verse 4, Katim, and Dodanim. Elisha uh, is probably people from Cyprus, and at least partly from Cyprus. In fact, Homer's Iliad mentions a people called the Elysians, almost certainly connected to Elisha here. You have Tarshish, some think that that's Spain, definitely somewhere west of Israel. You have Katim, and that is a, a plural name of multiple peoples, probably from Cyprus and Crete, both islands, or both areas. You have the Dodanim, that's also a multiple name, a plural name. Most people, most scholars believe that that's preserved in the people of Rhodes and the Dardanelles. So even today, you can, you can trace today's peoples all the way back to, in the Mediterranean, all the way back to the sons of Javan. Then verse 5 gives us information about the sons of Javan specifically and about all the nations in particular Important information for us. Information for us. Verse five: From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. And I just want to point out that God is emphasizing the distinctiveness of nations. This has always been His plan. Land. We have land here. This links all the way back to Genesis one twenty-eight, where God commands mankind to fill the earth. Fill the earth. Fill the land. You have language. That provides a clear distinction. That's as, as clear a distinction as we have. And then you have families or clans. These are not racial divisions. These are family divisions. The earth was divided by families. And what was God's promise to Japheth through Noah? Genesis nine twenty seven. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Geographically, Japheth spreads out farther than either of the other sons of Noah. And in some way, the nations of Japheth are now blessed by Shem. Now, how does that happen? Well, there's a couple of possibilities, a couple of outworkings of this. First of all, Jesus Christ, the most important Shemite of all, he commissioned his disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if you chart the progress of the gospel in the book of Acts, it basically goes to all the nations that are Japhethite nations that the first people outside the Jews to hear the gospel were the Japhethites. All those nations formed from that son of Noah. A second way that that blessing is worked out, many of you are Japhethites by ancestry. And as a believer in Christ, you dwell in the tent of the Shemite, Jesus Christ. You are blessed by that Shemite. You're part of what Paul calls the household of God. So those are the sons of Japheth. What about Ham? Second, the descendants of Ham. Chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt. Your Bible may say Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Reama, and Sabteca. The sons of Reama, Sheba, and Dedan. So you have Cush. This is south of Egypt. Mitzrayim, 
is Egypt. And if your Bible says Mitzrayim, Egypt, those two are, are interchangeable. I actually like Mitzrayim better because it's plural and it indicates upper and lower Egypt. You have Put, which is west of Egypt. This is likely Libya. And then, of course, Canaan, the Syria and Palestine area. In verse 7, we get more detail on Cush. He's referred to in Jeremiah 13 as Ethiopian, in Daniel 11 as Nubian. And this is not modern Ethiopia, but this is just south of Egypt where Sudan is now. Ethiopia is farther south now, but it used to be farther north. And so the Cushites are almost always associated with Africa. But this can't be the only association. A Cushite can also be someone in the region of Kushan, which is a Midianite, a Middle Eastern nation. And so while the primary association is with Africa, there are Cushites that are also Middle Eastern. And if you read through this carefully, you would see that both the lines of Shem and Ham share some names, Sheba and Havilah, they're either the same names or they're just uh, the same geographic identification. You can imagine that as, as people are multiplying like crazy because lifespans are really long and people are having lots of babies. And so there's going to be a mixture of peoples. And so it doesn't surprise us to see an overlap of some names. Seba and Sheba, these are two different peoples. Psalm 72 tells us this. Seba, grouped with Egypt and Cush in the Old Testament, Isaiah 43. So this is an African people. Ancient historians list Seba as the ancient capital of Ethiopia. Havilah is very interesting to me because Havilah is listed all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 uh, as referring to a, a geographic location mentioned near the Garden of Eden. But it's not necessarily the same location. It's probably just a name that continued forward. You have Sabta. This is likely southern Arabia. And then Sheba and Dedan, these are always listed together several times in the Bible because they were known for their commercial trade. They were the... They were the, the uh, the merchandisers, so to speak, of the ancient world. Sheba is most famous for the queen of Sheba who visited Solomon. Now, verses 8 through 12 is an interlude, which we're going to come back to. But the line of Ham now gives an emphasis to Mitzrayim, to Egypt. Look with me at verse 13. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, and Naphtulim. Naphtuhim, rather. Now, soon in Genesis, why, why do you think we have an emphasis already on Egypt? Well, very soon, obviously, as Moses is reading this law to the people of, of Israel who have escaped from Egypt, he gives more emphasis to Egypt because they're very interested in Egypt. They've just spent 400 years there. We'll see Egypt setting, being set up in advance now as the coming nation which will oppress God's people and from which God will deliver Israel and at that point officially form them into a nation. So Egypt becomes very important in Israel's history. And really, there's been conflict between Egypt and the, the sons of Abraham for a long time. There's conflict between Egypt and Abram himself in Genesis 12. Abram was told by God in Genesis 15 that his descendants would be strangers in a land that does not belong to them for 400 years, referring, of course, to Egypt. Abraham's great-grandson Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, so there's this conflict is set up already. You have the son of Egypt who is Ludim. That's a plural name. It possibly is speaking of the Lydians of Western Asia Minor. The Anamim, nobody knows who they are. The Lehabim, these are the Libyans, maybe alongside Put. And then the Naphtuhim, the middle or the lower part of Egypt. 
The sons of Egypt continue in verse 14. Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Pathrusim, these are the people of Pathros, the upper part of Egypt, uh, rather upper Egypt, the southern part of upper Egypt. There's good reason to believe that the Kasluhim and Kaphtarim from Crete, from Cyprus um, as well, they should be considered together as the origin of the Philistines. And we'll come back to them in a moment. From verse 15 on, we get back to Ham's son, Canaan. Great detail with Canaan now. Verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admon, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So just a couple of highlights from Canaan. You have Sidon. This is in Phoenicia, just north of of Israel. Tyre and Sidon would become kind of twin cities. Heth would be the father of the Hittites. And there's possibly, scholars believe, two different empires that end up being called the, the Hittites. But in either case, Heth is associated with at least one of those. The Archites are basically Lebanese. The Sinites are near the Archites, and they're, they're similar in location. The Arvidites, this is the very northern coast of Phoenicia, north of Israel. Uh, the Zimmerites in Syria, modern-day Sumra, is a city named after the Zimmerites. And then the Hamathites um, in Syria, there's an ancient city, Hamath, that's been uncovered, named after the, the Hamathites. Now, obviously, Egypt is highlighted in Ham's line because of the future major part they play in God's plan For Israel, they are the betrayer of Israel. They're the enemy of Israel, beginning in Exodus. But they're also portrayed in Scripture as a reminder of the grace of God toward all nations. Did you know that? You remember that multiple times in the book of Revelation, God pictures heaven is now populated by believers in Christ from every single nation on earth. And even now, reading in Genesis 10, a Jew would say, oh yeah, those rotten Egyptians. We know they're the bad guys. The emphasis is on them. But Isaiah the prophet, seeing ahead to the future messianic kingdom when Christ will reign on earth, he records the Lord's opinion of the Egyptians. And you know what the Lord calls them? The Lord says in Isaiah 19.25, this is speaking of the messianic kingdom, blessed be Egypt, my people. And so there is such an element of grace here that, yes, we're being set up for the fact that Egypt will be the enemy of God's people. But in the overall scheme of things, will there be Egyptians in the kingdom? Absolutely. Because God will save those from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God is forming the nations in order to save many in the nations in order that the nations might bring him glory. So that's Ham. How about the descendants of Shem? Verse 21 to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Eber is singled out as his name is the origin of the term. It's called a patronym. His name is the origin of the term Hebrew. And so this is, this is 100% agreed upon by scholars. The emphasis here is that for whatever reason, the people of God were named or nicknamed Hebrews after Eber. Eber is almost certainly an ancient king. He's believed to have been the king of Elba, 
Elba became a major ancient city in northern Syria, which, by the way, has given us some of our best archaeological evidence about the early centuries after ancient Babel. According to the genealogy, by the way, of Genesis 11, verses 10 and following, if you don't skip any generations, and this is kind of mind-blowing to think about this, if you don't skip any generations, Shem, the son of Noah, only died 34, 35 years, rather, before Abraham died. In other words, these men were living together. And so Shem would know that God had chosen Abraham, who had been descended from the great king Eber. In other words, Shem very possibly lived to see the beginning of the blessing given by Noah, his father, in Genesis 9, 26, that Shem would be blessed by God, and God would be blessed through his working in Shem's family. And so it follows here that Shem takes a little credit for being the father, as it were, of all the children of Eber. Did you see that in verse 21? To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. That's a little bit of family pride. That's right. The promise of God, hundreds of years after it's made, is being worked out. There's many more descendants of Shem. Verse 22, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Just a couple of highlights. Edom, Elam, rather, is would be the people in modern-day southwest Iran. The ancient capital of Elam was Susa, very famous in the book of Esther and the book of Daniel. Asher would be the, the progenitor of ethnic Assyrians, and that phrase ethnic Assyrians will become important, as we'll see in a moment. Arpachshad, he's unknown, but the best guess is that he's the father of the Chaldeans. Aram, the father of the Aramaeans or the Syrians. And then the table refers to, returns to Eber again. And there's a note about his son, Peleg. In his days, the earth was divided. What does that mean? Well, it means that about the time Peleg was born, that's when the Tower of Babel happens. And so there's a historical note here. The people of the earth are dispersed. The earth is divided. And then in verses 26 through 30, we have a list of the sons of Joktan, and I won't go through them, but Joktan's line is almost certainly the origin of all the Arabian peoples. Now, here's an irony for you. And here is a, a, a beautiful illustration of God's grace to all nations, to all peoples. If you sat down and drew this family tree, the family tree of Joktan and his sons, what you'll find is that both Arabs and Jews are not only fellow Shemites, but they're also both descended from Eber, meaning that technically Arabs and Jews are all Hebrews. Now, it's come to mean specifically the people of Israel, but what a great illustration of the grace of God to many more than just one chosen nation. And then verses 31 and 32 summarize once again where verse 1 started, these are the sons of Noah and their families. So that's God's plan for kingdom nations. It's, it's laid out. Now, this is a plan that no, no geneticist could come up with, no historian could come up with. This was laid out by God as it happened, before it happened. But embedded in this list are important details which would be helpful to Israel. 
And so I want to return just to a couple of details and show you now God's plan for Israel. We've had God's plan for the nations, God's plan for Israel. And first we see an important man in history, Nimrod. Chapter 10, verse 8. I know that today Nimrod has become something you call somebody who's not very smart, right? The original Nimrod, if you called him not very smart, he'd probably stick a spear in you because he was the mightiest man on earth. Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Razan between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. He's a mighty man before the Lord. This does not imply God's favor. All this is is a proverb to say that he is openly hostile before the Lord. He is, he is showing his strength before the Lord in oppositions to the Lord. He is shown to be the founder of Babel. That's going to be significant in the next chapter. And just a little note here, in case this feels confusing to you, the Cushites, which he is one, are primarily African. And if that's the case, what is Nimrod doing here in the land of Shinar, which is Samaria or Mesopotamia in the Middle East? I've already mentioned that there's no reason that the Cush can't be the father of Ethiopians and Nimrod, the peoples of Shinar. But here's an interesting little note from history. Ancient writings in the old Babylonian period describe these people who came with Nimrod, and it describes them as, quote, the dark-headed people. This isn't referring to hair color, but to skin color. So the first people of Nimrod in the Middle East were likely very dark. But why is he important to Israel's history? He's the progenitor of Babel, of Babylon, from which it gets the name from Babel. And Nimrod took over the territory of the Asherites. Remember I said that the ethnic Asherites went to a certain area, but Nimrod came with his people and took over. And so he's credited with forming what became the powerful city-states of Assyria, such as Nineveh. So you have Babylon and Assyria. From Nimrod, And if you know your Old Testament history, your lights are going off because you know these are important nations. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses will warn Israel that if they break covenant with the Lord, they'll be disciplined by other nations. And who ends up doing that? Babylon and Assyria. So the, the work of Nimrod continues in the hand of God. Verse 14 highlights the Philistines. There's a history of animosity between Philistines, the Philistines and Israel, going all the way back to Genesis 20. Already you see the beginnings of animosity toward Israel that, by the way, continue on to this day. The Palestinians of today, they're either named for or descended from the Philistines. The day I was studying this verse, the Palestinians were firing missiles and rockets at Israel to see that Genesis 10 is still happening today. There's still that animosity. So, of course, Moses, writing an inspired text here, is going to highlight this people that will be a thorn in the side of Israel if they don't obey the Lord. And then in the list of Canaan, the cursed son of Noah, we see many familiar names that would be of interest to the sons of Israel. Beginning in verse 15, the Jebusites, these are the inhabitants of Jerusalem from whom Jerusalem would be, they would be taken from them. The Amorites, they play a big part in Israel's history as enemies to be driven out of Canaan. 
Same with the Girgashites, another enemy to be driven out. The Hivites, another enemy to be driven out. What the Lord is doing here is he's setting up Israel and giving them the reason that they are going to go and conquer these Canaanite peoples. This isn't just just killing for no reason at all. This is judgment on a people, a specific people, the Canaanites, who came to symbolize all wicked nations that seek to suppress the implementation of God's kingdom plan on earth. His kingdom plan on earth is to bring the world into loving subjection to his sovereignty. The Canaanites symbolize the opposite of that the complete polar opposite of submitting to God. So Israel was appointed to remove Canaan from the land because they were in direct opposition to the plan of God for his chosen people, and they became the epitome of horrific Canaanite practices, pagan practices such as uh, idol worship and human sacrifice. And so Nimrod and Canaan, they both represent nations in opposition to God's plan, Shem and Eber, represent the nation that will carry out God's plan. So the table of nations contains this this tension, contains this conflict already. What is the plan for Israel? Psalm 67, 1 and 2, very often called the missionary's psalm or the psalm of world missions. I've heard it preached numbers of times, and I almost never hear anybody get the first two verses right because they miss a, a key little pronoun here. But Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2, gives a brief outline of God's plan for Israel. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. If we read it like that, you miss the whole point. This is God's plan for Israel. May God be gracious to us, Israel, and bless us, Israel, and make his face to shine upon us, Israel, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Israel existed to make God big in the world, to demonstrate the love and the mercy of God. So that's God's plan for kingdom nations. That's God's plan for Israel. What is man's plan? Well, as usual, man's plan is to reject God. It's to reject God. Now we're going to rewind to a time before chapter 10, we get to chapter 11, which chronologically happens first. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this account opens establishing the unity of mankind in both language and location. They're they're together. They're speaking the same language. They're all together. Instead of dispersing and filling the earth, people are trying to stay exclusively together in violation of God's plan to be fruitful, multiply, spread out. The land of Shinar is where the post-flood Tigris and Euphrates River is, and that's important because that's roughly parallel to the pre-flood Garden of Eden geographically. So, in other words, Genesis 1 through 11 has now come full circle. Garden of Eden, now we're back to rebellion, essentially in the same location, just after the flood. Technology is now expanding, and just like the line of Cain who expanded technology to try to numb the effects of the curse, of sin, instead of awaiting a savior from sin by faith, 
And so to stay unified, they're going to have one city. They're going to have one central tower with some sort of stacked pyramid called a ziggurat. The tallest ziggurats from that ancient time period were in the vicinity of seven stories high. So honestly, their attempt to reach to the heavens is kind of laughable by today's standards. But theologically speaking, why was the Babel incident a rebellion against God? Why is this so important? Why is it here in in Genesis? Well, God's plan from the beginning, all the way going back to Genesis 1, was global in nature. People were not to stay gathered in Eden, but they were to go and they were to rule the whole world sinlessly on behalf of God. God gave exactly the same command to Noah after the flood as Noah was the second Adam. So why is Babel a rebellion against God? Let me give you four reasons. And these really fit any person who's rebelling against God today. The first reason that it was rebellious was self-centered pride. Self-centered pride. Verse 4 says they determined to stay together. This is selfish pride. This is rebellion. And we see this in five plural pronouns for me. Let us, ourselves, us, ourselves, we. This is completely contrary to serving the Lord. So self-centered pride that it's all about me. Another reason this is rebellious, we'll call it self-power. Self-power. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden? Their sin was trying to achieve knowledge and power outside of God to be independent of God. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could know what God knows without God's help. They tried to be independent in power. Well, what are the people here at Babel doing? They're trying to achieve knowledge and power independently of God to violate the limits that God has put on on humanity. Self-centered pride, self-power. Third reason this is rebellious, self-glorification. Self-glorification. This is the sin of Satan, by the way. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. Notice whose glory they are not interested in. They're not interested in God's glory. They're interested in their own glory Now, here's the irony. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will, what? Exalt you. 1 Peter 5. God will exalt his people. He will lift up his people. In fact, he promised Abram in Genesis 2, I will make your name great, but only people of faith who have first exalted God. You want to be first? Then you must be what? Last. You want to be last? Then put yourself first. So they went after self-glorification. Self-centered pride, self-power, self-glorification. The fourth reason this is rebellious, probably the most heinous of all, self-made religion. Self-made religion. They wanted a tower that would reach to the heavens. They're staying together to create a false religious ecstasy. Babel is the birthplace of human false religion. A tower to reach toward the sun, toward the moon, toward the stars. Babylon would eventually become known as the world center for astrology. So instead of worshiping and honoring and serving and delighting in the God who made the heavens and the earth, mankind decided to assert his independence by making a really big bump. That's what they did. Look at us. Look how big we are. A big bump on the earth. In today's technology, you can probably build a seven-story tower with Legos. But for them, that was the biggest thing they could do. 
So mankind is trying to gain independence from God. So God said, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. So that brings us to our last plan. This is God's plan for kingdom nations revisited. God's plan for kingdom nations revisited. And I'm naming this point revisited because God's plan comes full circle. And he says, no, we're not going to go your way. We're going to stay with my plan. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. Now, as a literary work, the story of Babel stands as one of the greatest examples of sarcasm and humorous irony in Scripture. In verse 5, you can almost hear God saying, Oh, isn't the itty-bitty tower cute? He comes down to see it. And I wonder if some angels were there too, just laughing and, and, and God having to say, Be quiet, I know it's pitiful, but just, just look at it. But very quickly, we see God's concern, and we see his compassion. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This isn't God being threatened or afraid. It's just that mankind is headed toward a unified rebellion, which is going toward the the complete depravity of the pre-flood world. In other words, mankind is headed toward a point where all God can do is judge them. And so mankind is on the brink of creating a completely God-free society, a one-world government, one-world religion, and which obviously will only ever be accomplished through a one-world ruler. And so God's not going to allow this. And so in compassion, he'll stop the nonsense because if mankind unifies in rebellion, then God's response will be final judgment. So better an earth divided by warring nations than unified against God. Because there will be a day when mankind creates a one-world government and a one-world religion under a one-world ruler. The tribulation period under Antichrist, and you can read in Revelation 6 and following what God does to the world at that point, and it culminates that judgment in the personal invasion of earth by God in the person of Jesus Christ. So God's solution is a, is a judgment, but it's also a mercy, which continues his plan for the kingdom nations moving forward. So why did the peoples of chapter 10 disperse? Well, quite simply, they couldn't understand each other. A guy came to work on the tower one day and said to another, good morning, and his friend said, buenos dias. And they couldn't understand each other. They're, immediately, they would begin congregating by language. Verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Those who said to one another in verse 3 could no longer do so. There's no interpreters on earth yet. They can't communicate except with people who spoke the same language. Now, according to one language study group, it's estimated that there are six major language families with about 136 lesser language families. The six major language families then make up about 4,500 known languages. The 136 lesser language families make up about 2,600 known language. Incidentally, uh, one of the 136 lesser language families is called Barbacoan, which is apparently the language spoken at Chipotle Mexican Grill. So you add all that together, you have about somewhere in the vicinity of 7,000 known languages, and that doesn't include dialects. 
So all in theory, according to language development theory of today, God only had to divide people into a few major language families, as few as six, as many as 140 or 150. What really happened? Probably somewhere in between. Some scholars like the number 70 in representation of all the nations that were formed in, in Genesis 10. But whatever number it was, it worked. That's not surprising since God is undefeated in all of history. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. The Lord dispersed them. He forced them to do precisely what they didn't want to do. And like Adam and Eve who were expelled from the garden, now the people are expelled from the city of their rebellion. And now language separates mankind and the sin continues to invade, and as genetic differences and variations continue to further differentiate toward outward appearances, now outward appearance, what we wrongly call race, will begin to divide men. Verse 9, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now I want to show you something from this story that I think is instructive to us. This story shows that all human rebellion is matched by divine intervention. God never lets a single sin go unpunished or unmet. Now, this particular story is structured and designed such that God is sarcastically mocking the plans and the designs of of men. He's mocking what men do. The central feature, the most important verse in this narrative is verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And verses 6 through 9 contain God's mocking response to the so-called mighty plans of mankind in verses 1 through 4. Let me show you this. Man's mighty plan in verse 1, the whole world had one language and the same words. God's response in verse 9, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Man's mighty plan in verse 2, They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. God's response in verse 9, And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Man's mighty plan, verse 3, They said to one another, their little rebellious meeting, God's response in verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Man's mighty plan, verse 3, Come, let us make bricks. God's response in verse 7, Come, let us go confuse them. Man's mighty plan in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. God's response in verse 5, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Man's mighty plan, verse 4, Let us make a name for ourselves. God's response in verse 9, From there the Lord, Hebrew, Yahweh, The holy name of God, Dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And this is my favorite. Man's mighty plan, verse 3, come, let us make bricks. Make bricks is a typical Hebrew verb with three root letters. God's response in verse 7, come, let us confuse the same three letters backwards. A literal reversal of make bricks. And so everything that mankind does, God responds, responds, responds. And he pushes them to his plan. And so God's kingdom plan for nations moves forward. What I want to leave you this evening with four theological thoughts and one evangelistic thought. The first theological thought, God will always deal with sin. 
He will always deal with sin. There are clear, direct parallels between the fall of the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel, with both the members of the triune God convened to speak of a sinful situation and take radical action in the Garden. Genesis 3, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And he responds, God sent him out of the Garden. Genesis 11, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language confuse their language. The triune God responds to sin. With both, God issues judgment and blessing. In Eden, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, but if they don't, they would eat from the tree of life and they would be confirmed in their sinful state forever. In Babel, God confuses man's language, which causes scattering, but it realigns mankind to fulfill God's original purpose to fill the earth. Judgment and blessing. For us, the judgment fell on Christ and the blessing falls on us. And so the pattern remains the same. So second theological thought, God's plan for the nations proves his sovereignty. God's plan for the nations proves his sovereignty. Chapter 10 is not a reaction to the Tower of Babel. The nations are a result of God's predetermined plan. Chapter 10 isn't just an ingenious response. In fact, Acts 17, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having, listen to this, determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other other words, in which nations are where and for how long. And this sets up the world for a chosen nation to be a light to all the nations, which foreshadows the eternal state in which the nations and the kings of new earth are now fulfilling their role and function as given in Genesis 1. It's a third theological thought. It's a long one. God will erase the sin portion of how language and ethnicity divisions divide. God will erase the sin portion of how language and ethnicity divides. We have a beautiful picture of this, of the erasing of these, the sinful distinctions. In the New Testament, the gospel of Christ is put forward, and whether we, whether we see in Acts 2, we see the gospel spoken by the apostles miraculously in all the languages of the 15 countries that are listed, represented in a crowd of thousands. This is a reversal of Babel happening at the beginning of the church. Those that heard the gospel repented, and they came to faith in Christ. Now, one people under the cross of Christ. And what do they do now? Well, they return to their homes. They're still speaking their, their native languages. They're still observing their cultural customs. They're still looking like a specific people to whom they belong. But now they come away as citizens of heaven. And so they're citizens of their nation, and they're citizens of heaven The Apostle Paul would later say in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Babel disperses, but the gospel brings us together. It undoes Babel. And a fourth theological thought, God will return one day to finish what he started at Babel. He will return one day to finish what he started at Babel, Babylon, would eventually come to represent the capital city of Satan's kingdom. A real city, resurrected on earth by the power of Antichrist through Satan. Babylon would come to represent 
human false religion, materialism, uh, horrific immoral wickedness against God. Revelation 17 calls Babylon the great prostitute of sexual immorality, a woman drunk on the blood of murdered Christians. Revelation 18 records the coming fall of Babylon, a literal destruction of a literal city, and the mourning of all who loved her sin. And then in Revelation 19, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged on her the blood of her servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And what happens next? Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. At Babel, God came down. And when Babylon tries to take over the world again, God will come down in the person of Jesus Christ. A little bit more serious than the Tower of Babel. This time, not confusion of language, but the decimation and killing of all who would oppose God. So the Tower of Babel rightly has some humor in it because God is so merciful. He's still bringing about his plan for the nations. And what's the evangelistic thought? Well, simply all the theological thoughts put together. God will always deal with sin. God is sovereign over all things. You are divided from God in rebellion, but by believing the gospel of Christ, you can be united with God. And you'd better be united with God because he's going to come back to finish what he started in Genesis 11. He will come back. And so we have two choices. Go by your self-righteous plan, which will fail, and you will incur judgment or submit to God's plan which will succeed, and you will receive eternal life. So what's our one lesson tonight? Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Amen? Our Father, thank you so much for this text. It is monumental. It's so so clear, so instructive to us. And we, we look forward to a day, Lord, when the nations are no longer sinful, they're no longer at war, but they are made up 100% of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who are eager to serve him and to serve one another and to live on a new earth, pinnacled by a new Jerusalem, where your plan for the nations will bring you such glory, the, the, the joy and the variety and the diversity and the amazing, uh, amazing spectrum of your creativity will be revealed in ways we can't even possibly imagine. It'll be unity based in the gospel. And Lord, that's what we would pray for in the church today. We would pray for our church and we would pray for the church universal to be unified under the banner of Christ, to celebrate, Lord, your plan for the nations, which now is being worked out in this moment through the age of the church. We look forward to a day when you consummate all things and when all things in the Bible come to a close as you finish your plan. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.